The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition Podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Linia Patel. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the diagnosis and management of ARFID. And for this episode, I'm delighted to have an expert in the field, Claire Thornton-Wood, who is a paediatric dietitian. Hi, Claire. It's so lovely to have you back. You've been on the podcast before, and I know you're full of valuable knowledge and expertise. And this is an area that um, I don't know much about, so I'm really looking forward to learning some more. So let's jump straight into the conversation. If you could just reintroduce yourselves to our listeners, and, and we can take it from there. Hi, Linnea. Um, yeah, lovely to be back. And uh, thanks for inviting me back again. I'm really excited to talk to you about this, this topic. Um, yeah, so my name's Claire. I'm a paediatric dietitian. Um, I have had a few careers before I got here. I was a, a musician. I've worked in sales. I've worked um, doing events organization and uh, selling garden statuary. But um, yeah, for the last 12 years, I've been a, a, a dietitian and most of that time I've been in paediatrics. I've worked in, in the community, um, in, in district general hospitals, in, in specialist paediatric hospitals. Wonderful. So today's podcast is all about, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, is it ARFID? That's right, ARFID. I don't know much about it. So when um, I saw we were talking about this, I did, I have to admit, I did have to Google it. So it's avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. What on earth does that mean, Claire? So we definitely always call it ARFID. Okay, <laughs> good. That really is quite a mouthful. So ARFID is a, a relatively new term. The sort of recognition of, of, of ARFID as a diagnosis came about in 2013 when it first appeared in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Mm -hmm. um, previously, it was known as a number of um, a sort of umbrella of different different diagnoses or, or, or different conditions, really. So uh, maybe infantile an anorexia, extreme eating. Um, food neophobia, um, select, extreme selective eating. Um, yeah, and, and these terms sort of were, were never grouped together, together previously. Um, and, and this diagnosis sort of brought, brought them all, all together. And so why was it so long before a diagnosis? Why, yeah, why didn't we know about it before? And why did they suddenly bring all the... The, these kind of disorders together into ARFID? I think it was a, a recognition really that there were these um, separate um, conditions that were out there and, and they'd been given different names, but actually if you were able to group them together, they actually did have a, a recognized profile that you, could, that you could match and that you could put into one diagnosis. So simply, it's um, it's basically a category of an eating disorder, right? Yes, it, it is an eating disorder. So it is categorized as an eating disorder. But very specifically, the difference between ARFID and the eating disorders that perhaps people are more familiar with, like um, anorexia, nervosa and bulimia, it actually people with a diagnosis of ARFID don't have um, concerns about their body image. They're not concerned about their weight in the same way that um, many of the other eating disorders are. 
Okay, so what is the actual diagnosis? Is there, are there certain criteria or does that vary depending on uh, condition to condition? So it, it's characterized by a pattern of um, eating that means that you avoid certain foods or certain food groups either in their entirety or you only eat a very small number of foods from that group. Um, you can often um, restrict the quantity and it has to be due to, um, it's, it's not affected by someone's beliefs about the size or the shape of their body. Um, as I've already said, they don't, um, they don't restrict their food, food intake and they don't sort of over-exercise or um, use any other ways in, in, in which to restrict their, restrict their weight or their intake. Could you talk me through in a little bit more detail, Claire, about the DSM criteria? Yeah, so there are there there are five um, criteria that, that are looked at when, when you're looking at a diag potential diagnosis of ARFID. Um, so it's a persistent failure to um, meet their appropriate nutritional and or energy needs, um, which leads to one or more of these following criteria, which would be um, significant weight loss or um, failure to gain weight or faltering growth in children. Um, significant nutritional deficiency, dependent on enteral feeding or oral nutritional supplements, marked interfering with um, psychosocial functioning or, and um, issues that are not better explained by a lack of available food or associated culturally um, sanctioned practices. And does it present like this in clinical practice from your experience? Yes, I mean, I mean, it does. So it, it does present with a range of those areas. So just thinking about, you know, uh, maybe a, a child who has got ARFID, what, what would that what would that look like? So um, they might be avoiding whole groups of foods or whole textures of foods. Um, they'd be very sensitive to some aspects of food, like the temperature um, or the smell. Um, they would quite often gag or actually mm -hmm. vomit at the sight of um, particular foods, whether they're being asked to eat them or someone else next to them is being asked to eat them. You know, have a really strong um, disgust response. Um, they will have a, a, a diet that's very, very limited. Um, it's usually less than 10 foods. Naturally, in my practice, I, I sometimes see children that are eating far fewer foods than that. I've, I've seen children that just drink milk and eat crackers or eat um, crisps and, and, and chicken nuggets. Um, they have a, a, a real lack of interest in eating, often these children. Um, they, they'll miss meals. They never get hungry. They don't have any interest in food. Um, mm. you, could, you could ask them, you know, to eat something. And if it wasn't something they wanted to eat, they would just go hungry for that for the whole day um if child's slightly older they might be um you know trying to get out of attending social events because they know that it's going to be really tricky there um often you need to use distraction techniques around the table so if they are distracted with maybe using some kind of electronic device that can be really helpful but otherwise when they're asked to sit there and sort of concentrate on their food it means that they can find that really really um really difficult yeah some of that Claire sounds a bit like fussy eating so I mean what would the difference be between um, fussy eating and ARFID and how would parents know their child's not just been a fussy eater but there's something more going on 
I think it's the it's the severity of it really um the sort of longevity and the severity of it and the other um kind of aspects to it like you know the 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 social functioning um the really strong disgust response um the gagging the retching you know all of those yeah. all of those things I mean when it is diagnosed it's um it's, it's quite a complicated um process it was a very long um you know quite a long assessment we're looking back at the child's development their early feeding history um and it's usually made in a sort of mdt um setting so um yeah it's it's it, it's it's not that easy to diagnose but but when when you know the bits that you're looking for yeah it, it, no that makes sense so claire what predisposes somebody to getting off it so that's really interesting question, Linnea. That's something that um, we definitely try to unpick when we are um, assessing a, a, a child for um, potentially having, having ARFID. So we'll look at um, the early development and feeding of a child. And it can be um, all, all sorts of things. Um, it can be perhaps um, someone's had a, a, a choking episode, either themselves or they've experienced um, another another family member having a, a choking episode. And I've actually come across it where you have um, you might have a sibling who's got a medical condition that causes them to gag and choke quite frequently, and that can be um, something that triggers um, you know somebody to 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 you know begin to have these aversive food experiences um it might mean that they um it, it might be someone that's had a lot of um medical issues in the past so sometimes it's children who've been um who've been tube fed for a long time um they may have had lots of aversive experiences perhaps around medication you know um Sometimes if they've had a lot of medication that's had to be um, given to them, they may have actually been, you know, restrained even to, to give medication. Um, sometimes we find children that have had reflux in the past, a lot of reflux, perhaps if it's particularly if it's been undiagnosed and it's gone on for a long time. You know, we know that children are really good at keeping themselves yeah. safe. Um, yeah. And so they don't want to be near or have something that, that's actually going to cause them pain. Um, it might be that they have um, had an experience where they've been um, really cajoled into eating a food that they really, really dislike. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like with, as with other eating disorders, there's a real big psychological element linked in with ARFID as well. Yeah, it's probably important to say actually that this is a, this is a mental health diagnosis, ARFID you know, it fits under the umbrella of, of mental health. So it, it is a mental health diagnosis, but it does come with potentially quite a lot of physical um, difficulties as well. Yeah, no, I can only imagine. You mentioned um, diagnosis in children. So my question is, does ARFID only occur in children or does it occur in both adults and children? It occurs in, in both adults and, ch and children. It's it's more common for it to be diagnosed um, when you are when you are a child but it does it, it does get diagnosed when you're an adult and interestingly there is a little bit of a family link so when, when we're talking to um, families we will maybe be um, seeing the child who has been given a diagnosis of ARFID and 
during our sort of exploration, we will discover that actually one or other of the parents has um, has very similar things. And in fact, it's been quite um, quite humbling at times when, when, when we've met families and, and you are working with the child and, and one of the parents will, you know, disclose something and, and then you can see the sense of relief on their face almost when they realise that there's a reason why they are you know they are like that and some kind of it, it can form quite a strong bond between the mother and the or, or the father and, and and the child actually to feel that they are sharing the same kind of experiences together absolutely and although it's relatively new in terms of um classification and diagnosis do we have any um, data on prevalence like how many children are actually affected or diagnosed or how many children do you see in your workload <laughs> i had a really um I really quite a good look actually at, at this um, in, in terms of, you know, can, can I pin it down? And I have to tell you that actually I, I can't pin it down. A lot of the reports that have been done um, are on sort of um, smaller case studies. And I think because it is a relatively new diagnosis, um, it, it's difficult to, to get prevalence numbers. I mean, there are prevalence numbers for uh, looking at uh, children that are referred into a feeding clinic. Um, obviously, yes. that, that's much higher than, than the general population. There's also some prevalence figures about um, the link with um, children who have a diagnosis of ARFID and, and children who have a who also have coexisting autism. But I I wouldn't be able to give you a definitive figure I'm afraid <laughs> but that's okay but within your clinical practice I mean what is your caseload at the moment of children with Arthur and have you seen that rise over time I work in a so so a major part of my um, pediatric clin clinical practice is working um, with children with feeding difficulties so I certainly see a, a good number of children every, every week that have Arthur and I would say that the number that we're seeing is definitely increasing What's interesting to reflect on is, is this an increase in prevalence or is it actually an increase in um, our ability um, to recognise it? Um, so uh, I think there have recently been um, quite a few um, or, or a, a raising of awareness in the in the population of ARFIS. So there have been a, a few television programmes about it and there have been um, quite a a bit of um, sort of press coverage. I mean, very unfortunately, both um, in the last few months and, and, and over the past few years, there have been um, some cases in the in the press about um, young people who have had ARFID for a long time and who have unfortunately not had it diagnosed or managed in any way and, and, until really quite late on. And these children have had such severe um, nutritional deficiencies because their diet's so restricted that they've actually... Um, ended up, um, you know, having problems like losing, losing um, a part of their sight. Yeah, and I think, sort of thinking about prevalence, I definitely reflect back to when I worked in the community um, over many years, and and I would be left every so often with a child that, however hard I tried, whatever the parents did, whatever I did, whatever we suggested, we just could not move from this very very restricted diet and um on reflection now this was before ARFID was a you know was known as a diagnosis and I, I think those those young people almost certainly had 
had off it, I would say. Wonderful. I mean, so that's going to be really, I suppose, empowering for clinicians as well now that we've got a definition and greater diagnosis. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about how we um, treat it. Um, so that's good, yeah. good news all around. Um, I'm curious to understand, is there an average age for diagnosis of ARFID? I'm not sure there's a there's an average age. I mean, it can be diagnosed from the age of two, and certainly sometimes you can see signs of it before that. Um, it's probably usually diagnosed in early in early childhood. Um, I mean, parents by the time they get their diagnosis have often had to fight incredibly hard um, and suffer quite a lot of um, difficulty along the way with people saying to, to them you know, both, both healthcare professionals and, um, and other, other parents and family members, oh, you know, don't worry, they'll, they'll grow out of it, you know, um, it's just a phase, if you starve them, they'll, they will eat, um, you just need to persevere, um, that kind of thing, and, and, and they're quite desperate sometimes by the time they, they get their diagnosis. No, I'm sure, I mean, you've um, led me very well into my next um, thought, which is around, um, the effect of ARFID on families. I'm sure you have lots of first-hand experience of how it has an impact on families. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it has a it has a huge impact on families. So first of all, parents are understandably very anxious uh, about the fact that if their child is not getting um, the nutrition that they need, then they're not going to grow properly. Um, you know, they're not they're, they're not going to achieve their intellectual capability. They're going to suffer from all, all, all sorts of illnesses. And then you've got the the social aspect of food, you know, which we know is really important. Now, if you have a, a very small child, you know, a baby, a weaning baby, a little bit than that, it's perfectly acceptable to go to um to go to a restaurant and and, and take your own food. But if you think about, you know, maybe taking a five year old, a seven year old out it, it's not really acceptable to sit at the table um and and bring out your your packets of breadsticks and um you know some uh, some little bits of, of of breakfast cereal i think we, we would we would most of us would think that was a, a little bit unusual and certainly the, re the restaurant would think so so that can be difficult if you think about school these these children really struggle to access um school dinners they often struggle to access the the dining room even you know just to eat their own food in just because they can't they can't bear the the environment they don't like to be around um, other children that have food that they find um in their eyes really disgusting uh, you know, these children often exhibit a really really strong disgust response when they are presented either to eat or even to sit next to somebody eating a food they don't like i mean i've seen children um you know vomit when they see other people eating food that they don't like or um, do things like bring up a, a pillow or a or a cushion to their face to hide behind it you know to keep away from this yeah, food yeah um, and I guess if you think about you know the school one thing but you know there would be things like school journeys it can be really difficult for children to go on a on a school journey um, and even just simple things like going out with them um, with their friends yeah no absolutely somebody's house for tea so it has a has a big impact and i think it's it can make families really um 
really anxious. Yeah, massive impact. So Claire, I guess the million dollar question is, what is the management of children with ARFID? Um, you know, I'm a dietitian as well. I worked in pediatrics a little bit um, early on in my career, and, and I know very little about ARFID. So what is the level of knowledge amongst dietitians at the moment? Initially, the, the first thing that, that we would be looking at would be um, ensuring that the child is nutritionally safe, that they're getting everything they need to grow, they're getting the protein, the energy, the vitamins and minerals. Um, a big part of it initially is about reassurance. Um, the parents, um, I will start by saying to them that, you know, I'm initially working to get this, this, this child to have a diet that's nutritionally um, adequate. Um, but I'm not, I don't have a magic wand and I'm not expecting to be able to, um, you know, get them to eat the full range of, of, of foods that are maybe on the eat well plate. Um, and I'll say to the parents, I hope that, you know, you're not expecting that because that there's going to be some disappointment. So the sort of things that I would do first, it would be to look at, um, look at the, the growth history um, and look at the current weight mm -hmm. and height. And it's probably important to say at this point, but I suppose we're thinking about restrictive eating and thinking, oh, that must mean that everybody who um, who has ARFID is, is going to be very underweight or have faltering growth. That's not actually the case. There are some children with ARFID who are um, actually overweight and sometimes really quite considerably overweight. Um, and if you think about it, if you saw someone that was eating, say, you know, four loaves of bread in a day, they would actually potentially, depending on how old they are, be really quite overweight, but they wouldn't be nutritionally complete at all. Um, so that's something to bear in mind that just because they're overweight, that doesn't mean that everything's fine. Um, the first thing I, I would say to parents is, if you want to get the weight up, let's look at what they're eating now. And I mean, that might be chocolate cake, crackers and milk. And if that's the case, just get them to eat more of that, um, you know, drink, drink yeah. more, more of that. That, that would be the first, the first thing to, to do um, in a sort of low pressure way. But, but that's definitely the first thing that we would do. But also um, alongside be having a look at and think about vitamin and mineral supplements. Um, there's lots and lots of these on the market. I mean, gosh, you know, there seems to be a new one pops up every week. There's powders, there's sprays, there's tablets, there's liquids, there's all sorts of things. Um, there's ones that can be prescribed and there's ones that, um, that you can buy over the counter and, and, and we, use, we use either. Um, and, and it's just finding one that, that can be acceptable to, to a child. Um, we also then would sometimes use um, oral nutritional supplements drinks so um one thing that, that we do quite often is to uh if we have someone that's drinking milk we might add really really tiny amounts of um a, a neutral flavored uh milk-based supplement to that milk and gradually increase the amount that we're adding so that eventually okay. we um get either the whole lot that's a supplement or or half and half or something We'd also think about um, forti using fortified foods like, um, you know, there's breads that are fortified with iron and with um, with various vitamins. Um, we, we might think about breakfast cereal and also um, think about actually adding things into food. So breakfast cereals, for instance, um, you know, some of the oat based cereals that are fortified, you can actually use those as a, as a flour replacement. You can add in ground almonds. So if, Great. If, if the child will accept homemade cupcakes or something, you can you can do that. Um, further down the line, and, and probably in conjunctions with, with like the MDT, we, we might look at um, 
food exposure work or desensitization. Um, sometimes the, the child alongside that has, has CBT. Um, and we, we continue to sort of monitor just, just to make sure that as they reach the different growth stages that their, their intake is keeping up with, with what they need. Sometimes. Do you have children, just out of curiosity, who are not um, willing to take things like toothpaste or medicine um, as part of this um, condition? That's a really interesting question, Linnea. Yes, we, we see a, a number of children that, that really struggle with, with taking medicines. So um, things like liquid painkillers, um, antibiotics, and that's really difficult if, if you have a child with a really high temperature or maybe has tonsillitis and has been um, prescribed antibiotics and, and, and just refuses all of them. And, and sometimes those children unfortunately do end up in um, in hospital just in order to be to be given the, um, the medicine that they need. Um, and again, with um, with toothpaste, yes, cleaning teeth, um, because a lot of these children are what we would call very sensory. They 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 have lots of sensory aversion to things, so they might not like sand. Um, they might not like water, and and toothpaste and toothbrushes can be another thing that they that they find difficult. Yeah. So if we go back to nutritional management, um, one thing we haven't touched on is what happens as a last resort. What do dietitians do? Is tube feeding an option, for example? Yes, I mean, it's, it feels hard to call it a last resort, um, but sometimes we, we do need to um, tube feed these children, um, e even if it's just for a short amount of time where, you know, we worked for I, either initially we need to get their weight up and, and their nutritional intake better, or we've worked with them for a while and we're just not getting, um, we're not getting much progress and, and sometimes they need a short period um, sometimes we yeah. do have we do have children that that, that will need to have um, longer term feeding and they might have gastrostomies um, on the flip side we also have some children that um, will have had these you know th these gastrostomies and, and and then they actually will make progress and and, and we'll be working with them to actually uh, move from gastrostomy feeding to oral feeding so it's sort of worked ways. fantastic yeah yeah, absolutely. And so what's the end goal in terms of dietary management? I think it's sort of multi-pronged. I would say in my mind is to have um, to have a happy, healthy child and a happy, healthy family. And to sort of unpick that a bit, I would say that means that the child is nutritionally safe. It's having as little impact on the child's life and the family's life as um, as we can possibly manage and that they're also um, you know the anxiety levels in the family um, both the adults and the, and the child are as are as low as we can we can get. Can ARFID cause problems later in life for these children Claire? Yes it can definitely cause difficulties for them you know really right the way through their um, through their childhood and, and sometimes into into adulthood so in terms of childhood you know going on school journeys um you know going out with their friends um I, obviously I don't see adults but I do see some families where in fact the adult the parent it turns out actually has ARFID as well may even not be diagnosed or might be diagnosed later on because obviously that diagnosis wasn't around when they were children and it's quite um interesting talking to them because some of the things that they um they experience are you may be going to a to a business dinner and mm. um, whether that menu or, or or a very 
small range of foods and, and they find it really, really difficult to know what to do. And I was sort of reflecting back and thinking about somebody with, um, say, celiac disease who goes somewhere and needs a, a gluten free diet for medical reasons. And perhaps we need to um, think a bit more about, you know, our food is a medical diagnosis. And, and actually, do we need to make sure that we are accommodating enough to, um, yeah. to people? So school, for instance, is a school meals um or, or, or pat lunches a lot of schools very very um you know for very good reason really hot on their healthy eating they don't allow a chocolate bars or or crisps or, or biscuits or anything like that in, in pat lunches so if that's a staple diet for some of these children which often it is obviously there's nothing they can take to school so we actually write as as medical you know as a medical team and say these children must be allowed to take you know crisps and biscuits and, and, and chocolate bars in their in their pat lunch yeah absolutely and I'm sure that there's also an impact in terms of social socially as children go older as well right with going yeah, out so they need, yeah I mean they need to explain you know why is it um that I have different things in my lunch box to everybody else and, and we do talk to them sometimes about how they might explain their condition to to other young people yeah yeah Oh, Claire, I've loved speaking to you, um, but we must wrap up. Um, so the title of this podcast is The Diagnosis and Management of ARFID. What would your top tips be for dietitians and other healthcare professionals who are listening to this podcast? That's an interesting question, Linnea. I think my three takeaways would be um, be alert to this condition, be curious about it. Um, and be um, really encouraged by the fact that I think there's a much greater awareness of it now and, and knowledge and training around it is really improving. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast again, Claire. Claire, if our listeners are wanting more information about ARFID, where can they go? So if they're wanting to find the DSM criteria, they are ready available online. If you're wanting um, sort of, you know, more dietetic focused information, then a really good place to look is the British Dietetic Association website, especially the, the specialist groups, um, and also have a look on the, um, the Nestle M Plus Hub. Wonderful. Thank you. It's been wonderful speaking to you. My absolute pleasure, Linnea. It's been, yeah, it's been really interesting to talking to you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Medical Nutrition. If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.